Pastor Don is still recovering from surgery, and so I was thankful for the opportunity to bring the word this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. So I want to ask a question of you this morning, something for you to think about. It's not a particularly profound question, but what is the best meal you've ever eaten? You know, most of the food we eat is pretty forgettable, but every once in a while, there's that meal that just really satisfies. A few years ago, my wife and I were given a gift card to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in Grand Rapids. Uh, See some head nods out there. Uh, It was excellent. 16-ounce prime dry-aged ribeye, perfectly cooked. They serve it on a plate that's 500 degrees, so the steak stays sizzling when they arrive at the table. Mmm, that was good. (laughs) You know, it's even better to have a meal like that when you don't have to make it yourself, isn't it? Or when you don't have to pick up the check, that's even better still. And there's something really satisfying about a good meal. I wonder, have you experienced a similar satisfaction in your soul as the satisfaction physically of eating a good meal? Maybe to phrase the question another way, to put it simply, are you happy? I don't just mean the kind of like put a smile on your face when you come to church and pretend like everything's okay kind of happiness. I mean really and truly happy, the kind of happiness that's an anchor for your soul in the storms of life. I fear that too many of us haven't experienced that kind of happiness. For most of us, I think it's pretty well tied to our circumstances, whether or not we're happy or joyful. So what's the problem going on? Well, I think the problem is the fact that we haven't experienced that kind of happiness is because we're not looking to God for our happiness. Now, let's see if I can get the slides to work for me here. Nope, I might need your help, John. Oh, there we go. We got it. There we are. C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, Mere Christianity, nearly all that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And I think if you and I were to examine our lives and the deepest uh, sort of dissatisfaction we have in life, I think we would find, if we were honest, that it's largely because we're trying to find something other than God to make us happy. And this goes against the very fabric of how we're made as human beings. As Augustine also famously said, you stir us so that praising you may bring us joy, because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So do you find your happiness, your satisfaction, your contentment in God and God alone? Because as long as we're pursuing happiness for its own sake, or we're pursuing happiness in something else, it's always going to leave us wanting, and yet we keep striving to get there. So what's the solution to this problem? The solution is that we must turn to God if we are to be truly happy. 
Because true and lasting happiness can only be found in him. As my wife shared just a little bit ago, we're made by God and we're made for God. And until we realize that, we're going to be unhappy. But the question then leaves us, if we need to turn to God to be truly happy, how does God make us happy? And that's what I think Isaiah is going to tell us this morning in chapter 55. So follow along if you would as I read. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So how does God make us happy. I think if we were to look carefully at this passage, we'll see the first thing is that he invites us to feast on his word. Now the imagery is intentional here. Uh, sometimes I think that the Bible writers are pulling metaphors just to kind of help us with bigger abstract concepts, but we have to remember that the God who is speaking to us through his word is the same God who created the elements of nature by which we draw the comparison. And he implores us to come to a feast. Notice the repetition in the first verse. Come, come to the waters. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Come to me, again in verse three. God is not reluctant to make us happy. He wants us to be happy. But he also knows that we're only going to be happy in a relationship, a right relationship with him. And so he beckons us to come to him so that we can be happy. And look at what he offers. Wine and milk. Maybe it's Welch's grape juice, I don't know. But wine is a symbol of celebration, right? At the wedding in Cana, 
Jesus turns the water into wine because it's a great day of celebration. Milk, a symbol of richness. Sometimes we think God is like a cosmic killjoy, just wanted to take our fun away, and yet what he offers us here is rich delight. I don't know if we consider God that way. He says, eat what is good, delight yourselves in rich food in verse two. I particularly like that one as I was looking at the text. The literal Hebrew phrase there is delight your soul with fat. I love that. Delight your soul with fat. It's hard to eat vegetables, isn't it? But everybody loves bacon. Why? Why do we love bacon so much? Because it's rich, it's fatty, and God created it for us to enjoy. And that's what he's calling us to. That the, the smell of the morning, when you wake up in the morning, you smell cooking bacon. God has designed that sensation to help us understand something of what he wants to draw us in with by his grace. God wants us to be happy. But notice the invitation is addressed to a specific type of person. Everyone who thirsts should come. The invitation to the feast is only for those who know that they need God to be truly happy. This is exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed or happy, as Pastor Don shared last week from Psalm 32. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We're still again in Matthew 11. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is imploring us to come and enjoy him. But if you're too satisfied with this world as it is, you'll never come to him. In fact, the invitation's really not even for you if you're satisfied with this world. But if you're thirsty, if you look around at the world as it is and you say, there's got to be more than what I'm looking at right here, this invitation is for you. But if you don't know, if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you don't know that you are sick with sin, if you aren't weary and heavy laden, then you won't respond to the invitation. You'll offer an excuse instead. But if you know your need, and you know that he's beckoning you to come to him, to be happy, then you'll come to him. And when you come, you learn that it's all paid for, Come by without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? God has already paid the price for the banquet, for the feast. He's inviting us to come free of charge. And so we have to realize that our happiness is something we receive, not something we achieve. That's a problem for a lot of us. Because a lot of us have in our mind's eye what a vision of a happy life is, and it's something that we need to attain for ourselves. And Isaiah says, no, no, no. You need to come knowing that you can't pay for it, knowing that God has purchased it for you. Again, Lewis, so instructive, says it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. 
when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you think about that? As you think about your vision of a happy life, maybe you're not conscious of it every day. Maybe take today to examine your your mind and your heart on this. When you think of a happy life, do you think of drink or sex or ambition or all the related ideas that are temporal satisfactions? Or do you think about infinite joy Again, Lewis Ever, the wordsmith, it's not only a joy that goes on forever, though it does, into eternity, but it's a joy of infinite capacity and infinite value that apart from God, you cannot experience. There's always gonna be a ceiling on your joy and happiness until you come to God and find him infinitely satisfying. So what is it for you? What is it apart from God that you're striving after to make you happy. Maybe a good diagnostic to, to determine this too, what makes you most sad or angry? Because our anger corresponds to our love and the intensity to which we love something corresponds to the intensity of our anger when we're not satisfied with that thing. So what is it? What do you spend your time and money on? Because everything we need to secure true and lasting happiness has already been purchased for us. It's been purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Just two chapters before this, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a servant who suffered. In chapter 53, he says, this servant was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That means your sin and mine, the prophet's sin, and every other servant of God who's ever lived except Jesus Christ, their sins have been paid for by his blood. It was his chastisement that brought us peace. Don't we long for peace? By his wounds we are healed. He makes us righteous and he divides the spoils of victory with us. That means Christ by his sacrifice on the cross, has purchased for us the feast that satisfies our souls, the forgiveness of our sins, peace with God and with one another, the healing and grace that our hearts always hunger for, the righteousness without which none of us will see God, victory over sin and death and the inheritance of eternal life. It's all paid for. Why would you think you need to keep paying for it? Why would you not come to the feast until you have something to offer yourself? God has set the table for you and he's invited you to come. But this is not a literal feast, we know that. But the imagery is there. God didn't give us rich food just to give us bad cholesterol. He wants us to enjoy it and he wants us to enjoy it because that kind of satisfaction is an echo of the satisfaction of his grace. The feast is the word of promise, the covenant of grace. Look at verses two and three, how the metaphor gives way to the substance. Listen diligently to me. Listen and eat. Listen and eat. But then verse three, incline your ear and come to me. 
Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. The richness that God offers us is an everlasting covenant. A covenant promise of love and devotion. A promise that cannot be broken. He is made with us if we follow Christ, if we come to him. Christ is our king, our leader, the commander of the peoples, who loves, himself, who lo- who loves us and sacrifices himself for us, who glorifies us and makes us beautiful when we ourselves have nothing beautiful in us. It's a covenant promise of love and devotion that will never end. Don't you long for that? We live in a lonely society. You look at the studies out there on loneliness and isolation, people are longing for love and devotion and the security that comes with that. That's what he offers us. What our souls long for, God satisfies for us in Christ. He's our king, our protector, our guide, our leader. And everybody's looking for the secret out there that's gonna make them happy. The secret is right here. It's this covenant promise. Everything we've ever really wanted in life, we find him to be most satisfying. But here's the thing. It's not offered to everyone, and we must come to him and forsake our rebellion in order to receive it. See, the problem with giving up our rebellion or repenting is that we often don't think of rebellion as rebellion. We think of our rebellion, what it actually is, we think of it in terms of, I'm just trying to be happy on my own terms. I'm just trying to find some satisfaction in life the way I want to find satisfaction. And so we, we think in those terms, but what the Bible reveals to us is that trying to find happiness on our own terms in something or someone less than God is actually rebellion against him because he made us to be satisfied in him and him alone. And so we need to repent to come to him. But when we do, he shows us unfathomable compassion. This feast has been paid for, the covenant secured, but we still need to come to him. He's not going to force it on us. And we need to come to him with urgency. Look again at verse six. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now is the time. The fact that you're drawing breath this morning is the sign to you that today is the day to seek him. Because now he may be found. And tomorrow he may return. And if we reject his offer now, there's nothing left for us. There's a day coming when it will be too late. But if we seek him now, what happiness, what joy, what richness we find in him. And when we come, we need to forsake our wicked ways. There's a whole movement in the world and even in the church today that would try to convince you that God wants to celebrate you just as you are. He wants you to be proud of your sin. He wants to celebrate whatever you think is gonna make you happy. Just go on and live that way and God is cheering you on on the sideline. Nothing could be further from the truth. We need to forsake our wicked ways. Why would we labor for something that doesn't satisfy? Why would he allow us to go on in something that's gonna make us miserable both now and even more so in eternity? Sinner, why would you die? 
The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So we need to give up our wicked ways to come to him. But when we do, when we forsake our wicked ways, we find his compassion unfathomable. Look at the second half of verse seven. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. It's a real tragedy that we have a picture of God in our mind's eye that says he wants us to come to him so that he can shame us and wag the finger at us and just put us in our place. Well, we need to be put in our place, but that's not, what, that's not why God calls us to himself. He calls us to himself so that he can have compassion on us. He is eager to show us mercy, not to say I told you so. And when we repent, the floodgates of mercy open. It is his natural way to show mercy. And you might think, is God really like that? Is he really that eager to show compassion? And we think that way because we don't typically experience that or we don't think that of others when they sin against us. That is exactly the way God is. He says in verse eight, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You know, I used to think those verses primarily referred to God's providence. Well, it's raining today. It's not the way I would have done it, but his ways are not my ways. And there is some truth to that. It is true that God's ways of wisdom, who can search them out, right? So his providential ways are higher than ours. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about his ways of pardon and forgiveness and mercy. It's as if he is saying, my thoughts of compassion are not your thoughts of compassion. Neither are your ways of forgiveness my ways of forgiveness. As John Calvin said, there is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think God is like ourselves. In short, God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive so that it ought to be ascribed exclusively to our unbelief if we don't obtain pardon from him. If God was like us, we would have little hope of finding forgiveness and grace. We aren't nearly as eager to forgive as God is. That's why Jesus, when he talks about forgiveness, he addresses our hardness of heart. Right? When he says it's hard for us to forgive, it's because we are hard-hearted creatures. It's not because God is somehow withholding forgiveness. Imagine if another person knew about you what you know about you. Imagine somebody had a screen. This was the way my youth pastor used to talk about judgment, like the movie screen and our whole lives, our thoughts, our desires, everything up on that screen. I don't know if that's actually true, by the way. But imagine that right, in front of the whole world, that would be terrifying. Because as human beings, we are not quick to forgive. We're not quick to show mercy. But God is. God is not like us. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That comparison of heaven and earth to, to magnify the distance between them as though they could be measured that only shows up that image one other time in the Bible, in Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, he says, as, the heavens are above, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? So far does he remove our transgressions from us. God's ways of compassion and forgiveness are so vastly different from ours that you can't even measure the distance between them. As Paul says in Ephesians, his grace is immeasurable. His love is incomprehensible. And so the prophet says here, his compassion is unfathomable. But can we really trust that? Can we, can we really trust that God is as compassionate as he says? How do we know this isn't some ploy? Well, verse 10, 11, his word is a guarantee. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Again, the satisfaction of our souls, giving us the bread we desire. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I believe some here today are doubting whether God is as good as he says he is. I also believe there are some here today who are probably doubting that God is as serious about sin as he is, or as he says he is. And I can assure you, he is both of those things. We cannot underestimate how serious God is about our sin. We are far more sinful than we'd like to acknowledge. And at the same time, God is far more compassionate and far more eager to show mercy and grace than we could possibly imagine. And so his word stands as a guarantee of both. For those who reject the gospel, who continue to seek happiness in their own sin, there will be judgment one day. But for those who earnestly seek him, who turn away from their sin, who say, I'm done with that. I don't want any more sin. I want to live righteous. I want to live according to his word. To them he shows abundant pardon. And that pardon is not only for the here and now, but he promises to lead us safely home. You know, God led his people out of bondage and slavery once before in the Exodus. It was a physical bondage and slavery, but it became the pattern of God's deliverance, the Passover sacrifice that atones for the sins and, and spares the firstborn son of the family, to bring them out in haste to leave behind the leaven of the old life, the leaven that's full of sin and rebellion against God. Leave it behind. Make sure you got your belt on, your shoes on, because as soon as you eat this, you're out of there. And Paul says that's the image of the Christian life. Our sin has been forgiven. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, get out of your old life. And when you do, when you leave that old life behind, it says you're led forth in peace and joy. What God is offering us in Jesus Christ is nothing less than joy and peace and happiness forever and ever, world without end. Everybody wants this stuff, don't they? You ask somebody, what do you really want in life? I just want to be happy. I just want some peace, right? You watch the news, there's no peace. Right? Like the song says, there's no peace on earth, I said. But with God, there is peace. And even while we endure the trials that Peter referred to in the scripture reading that Pastor Doug read a minute ago, while we endure those trials, we rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And that obtains the outcome, salvation of our souls. 
And the amazing thing is, the beauty of the poetry in Isaiah, I love it, is this salvation, this redemption, is not only for us, for those who have trusted Christ, who have turned from their sin and find satisfaction in him alone, but it's actually for all of creation. If you know your Bible well, you remember when Adam sinned in the garden, the earth was cursed to bring forth thorns and thistles, and it was by the sweat of our brow that we would eat our bread. That's why when we enjoy the satisfaction of a good meal, even to this day, it still requires toil and sweat or money or something. But this curse is being reversed. When God fulfills his purposes for his redeemed people, there are no more thorns. But it's going to be a renewed earth. And all the joys that we experience in a temporal and fleeting way here in this life will be ours forever. Our bodies aging because of the curse, our impending death that we're all awaiting because of the curse, gone. Infinite joy instead. Right now, all creation is groaning under the weight of the curse. And it's eagerly awaiting the day of the revealing of the sons of God. So when God leads us home, the very creation itself is going to rejoice. No more thorns. Right? You think about all the problems in this world, all the interpersonal problems, that all just kind of the natural setbacks we experience. Gone. Forever. Can you imagine? It's hard to come to grips with a world like that. There's going to be an everlasting sign. An everlasting sign that brings glory to God forever and ever. This gospel call to repentance and happiness is actually kind of a theme of the whole Bible in a sense. The joy, the invitation to know God intimately and personally, to walk with him, to have an anchor for our soul, it runs through the length of scripture. We thought that that fruit would make us happy. Cain thought that murdering his brother was gonna make him happy didn't make him happy. It only made it worse. And everything you and I do in the pursuit of our own idea of happiness, our own conception of what happiness looks like, it leaves us wanting. But God in the Bible is calling us to enjoy him forever. And as the book comes to a close in Revelation 22, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us as believers, the deposit the first down payment of our salvation. The spirit and the bride, the church, the church that's experienced the taste of the heavenly things. Say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Can't buy it. That's the call for us today. Don't refuse this call. Today is the day to find your happiness in God. Let's pray. Our Father, our confession before you this morning is that we are too often satisfied with lesser things. Let us leave those things behind. Our pride, our reputations, the things that we try to cultivate so carefully in this world, our ambitions, 
our goals, the things that we set for ourselves that if we don't achieve them, uh, or if we do achieve them, we think will bring us ultimate happiness. The approval of other people, the glory that we seek from men, all these things that we look for, for true and ultimate happiness are fleeting and insufficient. But you, O oh God, through your son Jesus Christ, the everlasting covenant that he's purchased with his own blood, that's the satisfaction our souls long for. Give us grace, Lord, to turn to you day by day, especially for those who have walked with you for some time but still have a hard time really being happy in you. May they turn to you and find the satisfaction they long for today. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.